the Word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter the, because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. For let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And here's the sermon text now. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we need your grace. We need your mercy. We need to know your love. We need full assurance of faith every day. We are tempted sorely. We have many difficulties and many challenges and many times we are so disappointed in our own life, our own words, our own thoughts. And so we come to you this morning praying that your blessed spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds. You would open us up to the scriptures. You would speak to us, each and every one of us, as if we are the only one in this room. We're one-on-one with you, that you might strengthen our faith and 
Give us great resolve when we leave here today to walk according to your holy word and to open our mouths and to demonstrate through our lives to others the blessedness of faith in the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. I I move around and I'm afraid I'm going to knock things here. Every pulpit I enter to preach in is completely different. So uh, by the time I'm done, I'll have have this wired, I think. Uh, Many years ago, uh, as a skinny little kid... Every once in a while, I would go to work with my dad, and he was in the building business, worked for a company that built uh, apartments and condominiums in Orange County back in the 60s. And the highlight of those days, I love being with my dad, but the highlight of those days is when I heard the horn honk and the coffee truck came on uh, to the property there, and I don't know if you've ever seen them, they open up the whole side, and there's all kinds of food and drink, and break time, I was there. Lunch time, I was there. Next break time in the afternoon, I was there, and I got to walk right up and take whatever I wanted off the truck, and I didn't have to pay. So who was I? Well, I was Nobody. Nobody even looked at me. They were all busy doing their own thing. Who's this little kid here? But my dad was the boss. And the owner of the truck wanted the next job to be his job as well. And so because of my dad, I was able to get anything I wanted off that truck. Pretty, pretty neat experience for a young kid. Guess what? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, and who you are in him, and he in you, you and I have the privilege, apart from all the rest of the peoples in the world, to go to heaven into the Holy of Holies and talk with our Heavenly Father anytime, day or night. Not because of you or me, only because of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this text is about. It's exhorting us to know this and to take advantage of it, to enter in, oftentimes, into the fellowship of our Lord and God. A little bit of context here. The writer to the Hebrews uh, writes excellent theology, but he does it in a pastoral way. He's concerned about the saints. He says, press on. Do not let sin harden your heart. Don't let it deceive you, and it can deceive you. Make sure you enter God's rest through a sincere faith that demonstrates its truthfulness through obedience to God's Word. He emphasizes faith Revealed by an obedient life. Don't deceive yourselves. God's word reveals who you are in your deepest thoughts. We just read that together. God sees and knows everything about you. Everything. Someday, every one of us will give an account. Will that be with Christ as your high priest? Will you stand there in Christ before God Almighty or completely on your own? 
our text this morning again because it points to Christ almost every verse uh, before we get to chapter 4, but again it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Point number one, a great high priest in glory. That's who Jesus is. And much of Hebrews is about his perfect priesthood. Uh, notice in our text here, in verse 14, uh, uh, we are exhorted to hold fast our confession. That's the first command in our text. The next one will be in verse 16. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast your conviction, your your faith, your beliefs. It's not too hard to hold fast to them here together. And we come here to be encouraged and to encourage one another. But when we go out into the world, oftentimes we feel very much alone. And that's where we need to really stand on what we profess. Now, there are three reasons he gives in this verse. Uh, They come through Jesus, our great high priest, You see that in verse 14. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. And uh, it's because of where he is, who he is, and what he has done and continues to do for us. Okay, so what has he done? Why did Jesus come into this world? There are a number of reasons, but we know the main reason is to go to the cross. The main reason he came into this world was to die on that cross. Why? Because he wanted to represent us because he's loved us with an everlasting love. Every single one of us. He knows your name, your face, your life. He knows everything about you. And that passionate love he had drove him to the cross. He didn't commit one sin. He obeyed the law of God perfectly in thought and word and deed. And he alone could be that sacrifice for sinners. He alone could represent human beings before the eternal God. And so he came and he died that awful death, the death of the cross. We've heard much about it already. We're going to hear more about it in the Lord's Supper. We're going to stop and pause and and really quietly think about it because it's so important to us. But he also continues to do something. Hebrews tells us that he continues to intercede for us. He prays for us. He is in the Holy of Holies at the right hand of God, and he there represents every single one of us. It's hard to comprehend how could he ever do that, but but he does. It's what the Scriptures tell us and encourage us. Jesus has your back, as the saying goes. Jesus loves you, and he will constantly bring you to his heavenly Father. We never go by ourselves. We only go in his name. I didn't go to the coffee truck in my little name. I went because my dad was the boss, you see. We go because of Jesus. Where is he? Well... The verse tells us that he is in the highest heavens. This all used to take place, the 
all of the, uh, the killing of animals and the burning of animals and the shedding of the blood and offering these things to God was all done on earth. But now Jesus is in the highest heavens, which implies his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to glory, to that great place of power and authority at the right hand of God. The 110th Psalm, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that process is taking place right now. And that's where Jesus is, dwelling in the holy of holies. So who is he? Well, the verse tells us, very specifically, he uses certain words. He is Jesus, the Son of of God, Jesus, meaning Savior, he's the Savior uh, for sinners. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, uh, is the one who represents us. Now, there are all kinds of truths in chapter 1 of Hebrews and then chapter 2 and so on about Jesus. Listen to what we learn as we read. Hopefully, you'll go home and read some of these things later today. He's in verse 2, chapter 1. He's that great prophet, the final, ultimate word of God brought uh, to mankind. He is the ultimate revelation of the invisible God. He is God come. You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus Christ. He's the great prophet. He will tell you. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. And in chapter 1, he's called the radiance of the glory of God. He is very God, in essence God, fully God. He is the second person of the Trinity, known as the Son of God. He is also described in chapter 1 as Almighty King, and he came to make purification for sins. He is described there as the eternal Lord. And then as we turn the page to chapter 2, he is described as fully man. Verse 17 of chapter 2, if you take notes or you like to turn and look at the passages, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To do what? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. In chapter 3, he's described as the apostle and high priest of our confession. Uh, I've given you how many different descriptions of who Jesus is there in just uh, uh, a little over a chapter. You need to look at them and think about each and every one of them. But he is contrasted with the Old Testament priests that served uh, through the line of Aaron. Uh, They were men chosen by God, sinners like we are, and yet servants of God, and they would serve and live out their life, and they would die, and then more would rise up and and take their place, and and so on. And we see that continuing uh, even now as we live in this world. But Jesus is completely 
unlike that, he will never die. He will never stop representing us and serving us because of who he is, you see. Uh, Once a year, the great day of atonement, one high priest was selected through Lot, and he prepared a couple weeks in advance, knowing exactly what he was going to do on that great day. And the very first thing he did was offer up sacrifices for his own sins and the sins of his family. And then he offered more for the sins of the people of God. Once a year, perpetually, he entered the Holy of Holies carrying blood and sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat where God dwelt before his people. They put bells by command of the scripture on the bottom of their robes. You could hear him inside there, the other priests and others serving. They put a rope around his ankle if he did something wrong and was struck dead and they didn't hear those bells tinkling at all, then he, they would drag him out of the Holy of Holies. They would never step inside that place. And yet Jesus, what does he do? He's done it once for all, a perfect sacrifice, never being offered up again. And now he makes continual intercession for each one of us. And so we are exhorted here to what? To hold fast our confession. I hope what you've just heard is your confession, your conviction. You hold it fast. You believe it. It's more important to you than anything else in this world. Your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Bishop Westcott writes about this passage. uh, The writer everywhere insists on the duty of the public confession of the faith. I heard the couple are, some are coming in soon to be members here. They have confessed their faith before the elders of the church, and the elders will bring them forth, and they will express uh, and take vows here before all of you. That's important. The crisis claimed not simply private conviction, but a clear declaration of belief openly in the face of men. There are things going on here in Hebrews, and the writer is warning people because some are falling away, you see. And he says that this is a crisis. Have you known someone who has professed faith in Christ, and you've walked with them, and they with you, and it appeared that they were a believer, and then over time they, they started just falling away, and you couldn't bring them back, and uh, they were lost? How awful is that? That's what he's referring to here, and he's deeply concerned about it. You know, today in our culture, uh, uh, people make confessions, and they take vows and oaths, and they make promises, and for so many today, these are meaningless words. It's a grief for a pastor, for elders, 
to talk with someone who is wayward, who is out there, and who is now not attending anymore, and you go to them and you say, what about the vows that you took? Uh, These are promises to God. And they just shake their head like, you have nothing to say to me, I have nothing to say to you. And they walk over those promises that were made. They're meaningless. A group of men in the Old Testament, known as David's mighty men. You remember those guys? There's a a chapter on the mighty men in 2 Samuel. I think it's the second to the last chapter in 2 Samuel. And there's a whole list of them and some descriptive phrases there regarding these men. Raymond Brown writes about David's men. He says, their duty at that moment was to obey the king's instructions and to trust his wisdom. It meant that they were going into a life of hardship, insecurity, privation, suffering, and possibly death. But they would be with the king. And that was enough. Well, they stayed with David for 40 years. Some of them died But many were still uh, alive when David was uh, entering or ending his time as, as king of Israel. That's commitment. And yet today people have the hardest time uh, making a promise, making a commitment, and then keeping it. Especially in the realm of marriage and and family. The breakdown is just tragic. And the outcome is the the harm to those little ones that are right in the middle of so many divorces. May God give you, me, us, the grace to be faithful to our spouses, to keep our words of promise until death do us part. Second point. Most important, a great high priest with a human nature. He's God. He's that glorious high priest. He's the eternal Son of God. But he is also fully man. And that's important for us to know and to believe. Notice what 15 says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's a sympathizing high priest. There were groups of people, philosophers, back in Jesus' day and, and after Jesus rose from the dead and went to glory. They're called the Stoics. They believed that the primary attribute of God was apatheia, the inability to feel anything at all. And so they reasoned that if he could feel, he could be controlled by others and therefore would be less than God. Think on that. Then there were the Epicureans who believed that God dwelled in a place called Intermodia, the spaces between the worlds, and he lived in complete detachment from the world that he made. He didn't care about us. He's doing his own thing, according uh, to these people. Yet in contrast, 
with those philosophies, Jesus as high priest can fully sympathize with our feelings, our suffering, our temptations. He entered into this world in the Christ, in the anointed one, in the Messiah, and he took on a complete human nature. And therefore, Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he always will be. We read about it in different places in Hebrews. I won't turn there, but just in the first few chapters, you will see that. And see, so he, he, can, he can feel the things that we are going through. And like the rest of us, Jesus, as a little tiny boy growing up, had to learn how to stand up, and we've got some grandchildren, and it's, it's amazing to watch the little ones. Uh, we have uh, a daughter in Tucson, and her and her husband, they're going to be moving here in about a month. He's going to be going to Westminster Seminary, and they have two boys, their youngest, here I am getting off and bragging about grandkids. I'll try to be brief. Um, his name is Judah, the youngest one, and he's 12 months old, and he's been walking. You know, and it's like the ground is uneven when they walk, you know, and you watch them. And then, then he, he's starting to say some words. Of course, I had to teach him the word Papa. You've got to say Papa. And he said it. And uh, I said, okay, you're my favorite grandchild for the day, and so on. Well, guess what? Jesus had to learn all of those things. We, we think because he is God and man, because he has a divine nature alongside a full human nature, that he didn't have to go through any of those things. But he went through all of them. And yet the Bible underlines, yet without sin. He was tempted like we're tempted. When he was in the wilderness, beginning his ministry, he was uh, literally, one of the Gospels says, he was driven out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights by the Holy Spirit. He, he ate nothing, drank nothing during that time, and then Satan came along and he tempted him. Remember those three temptations? And Jesus quoted the Word of God, Back to him. When Jesus, on the third time, telling his apostles that he was going to be taken and crucified and die on a cross, Peter, in front of the rest of the apostles, took, took him aside and he said, Lord, you can't do that. That's not the plan here. That's not what we're expecting. And Jesus, what did he say to Peter? It's strange. Get behind me, Satan. You're not interested in the things of God right now. You're concerned about the things of, of man. It was the devil tempting him, sadly enough, through Peter himself in the garden of Gethsemane. Before his trial, he went there and he prayed with some of his disciples. And he fell down on his face. And I think it was Luke who described him sweating drops of blood because of the intensity. And he kept bringing this uh, to, to God, this temptation to what? To turn away from the cross. But he always said, Lord, not my will, but may your will be done and accomplished here. I will do whatever you want me to do. 
I think he was tempted during his trial and crucifixion, even while he was hanging on the cross. And the religious leaders came by and scorned him and said, if you're the son of God, then come down from the cross. Go ahead, save yourself. Scorning him. And he, he could have done it like that. The temptation was there, but no, he stayed there. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was made sin, a sin bearer, your sins and my sins laid upon him on that cross. And he loved us so much, he stayed there. And he endured the full wrath and punishment for sin that was mine and was yours. That's how our our Lord and our Savior loves us. You know, some have said, uh, challenging C.S. Lewis years ago, that Jesus was perfect, so he didn't really know temptation. It was not a big deal to him. It wasn't real to him. Lewis uh, wrote on that subject, and he says, a silly idea is current that Good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Boy, I appreciate his writing that. It's so important. Jesus knows and understands. I've had people say, you just don't understand what I'm going through. And I can't understand what everybody's going through. I've only had a certain amount of experiences. But it doesn't matter if I understand. The Lord understands. And he knows John wrote about Jesus in this way. He said, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He was tempted throughout the course of his life, and he never gave in once. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is not a stoic. He feels, he cares, he experiences our struggles in this world with the devil, with sin, with death, and he is victorious. And thus in him, we are victorious as well. Uh, Listen to these words, and if you uh, would like to turn there, you may. Matthew 11 Listen to what Jesus says to us. The very end of uh, Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and I and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's where we need to go. He knows, he cares, he understands. Come to me, says Jesus, uh, and I will help you with the burden that you have. Point number three, final point here this morning, is simply this, a great high priest who receives sinners. See it in verse 16. Uh, It shows us, that verse shows us what we are to do, where we are to do it, and why. Notice he says, draw near with confidence. It could be translated with bold frankness. As an honest, humble seeker. And yet, how can we do that when we sin so often? And uh, the, the, the darkness at times in our hearts is, seems to be overwhelming. How can we come before God? When you think about the Old Testament and the struggles they had, the high priest would never enter into the Holy of Holies, except for that one day after having been selected by lot and prepared to enter with blood, you see. Nadab and Abihu, do those names ring a bell with you? Aaron's two oldest sons offered up strange fire, unauthorized fire before God, and they were struck dead. What about Uzzah? He was walking along, uh, it was on a cart, the ark, and they were taking it into Jerusalem. David was rejoicing, remember that? And the oxen hit a rough spot in the road, stumbled, The cart started moving like this, and Uzzah grabbed hold of that ark. You might say, well, he was sincere. Yes, but this was the holy ark of God, and it was not up to Uzzah to save God or his ark. And God, being holy, struck him down. Uh, The people in Hebrews chapter 12, you can... Write that down in in your notes, Hebrews 12, verse 18 and following. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the Order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned, Mount Sinai. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. How to enter into the presence of this holy God. So how do we do it? Well, we've learned here today, Jesus is our high priest He is there in the Holy of Holies, the very throne room of God. He is the one who tore that curtain in two, symbolic of entering into the Holy of Holies. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He is our righteousness and our advocate. Our confidence, brothers and sisters, 
is not in ourselves. It cannot be. If it is, every time you sin, you're going to hesitate. I don't think I could go to my Heavenly Father. I've been there before. I've stumbled into this before. I'm ashamed of myself. And so how can I now face my Father? I think I'll just wait a a day or two and then maybe go to the throne room of God. But that's thinking by someone who thinks that your track record and your obedience has to be at a certain level before God opens the door. But you see, we, when we sin, instead of running away from God, God exhorts us, even in this verse, run to me. Come to me in Jesus Christ. Humbled, grieving, asking for the grace to truly repent and turn away from that vile sin that corrupts us so. The basis for you going to heaven and talking to God as your Father is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. Don't run away from Him. Run to Him at all times. And where are we to go? It's described here as the throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment. It's not entering in before the judge of all the earth, surrounded by powerful angels in flaming fire. No. It's being led by Jesus to our Heavenly Father, to His throne, described as a throne of grace, not a throne of fire and judgment, but grace. John Calvin, that great theologian, was also a wonderful pastor. He had a real shepherd's heart. Listen to what he wrote concerning this particular text. He said, The basis of this confidence is that the throne of God is not marked by a naked majesty which overpowers us, but is adorned with a new name, that of grace. This is the name that we ought always to keep in mind when we avoid the sight of God. And we do. We're tempted to. The glory of God cannot but fill us with despair, such as the awfulness of His throne. Therefore, in order to help our lack of confidence and to free our minds of all fears, the Apostle clothes it with grace and gives it a name which will encourage us by its sweetness. It is as if he were saying, since God has fixed on his throne a banner of grace and of fatherly love towards us, there is no reason why his majesty should ward us off from approaching him. Now we approach him as our heavenly father and his arms are wide open to each one of us. In the Gospels, Jesus uh, exhorted on one, uh, at one time that we must ask and seek and knock, and the door will be open unto us. And that's a, a good exhortation to remember. We don't believe in a dead unfruitful philosophy or ideology. 
we believe in a living hope that God has become our Father in Christ Jesus and through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And He bids us to come to Him day and night with all of our needs. That little kid went to that truck and if there had been four times to go to it in a day, he would have been there because his dad was the boss. Well, we're in a much better place. We come in the name of Jesus. Praise God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so very, very grateful for you, for what you have done in your Son for us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, Lord. We thank you for his ongoing ministry of mercy and of grace to us. Father, we love you. We pray for greater grace, even as we now partake of the supper. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.